0: Good morning, sisters. It's good to be with you this morning. Very happy to have an opportunity to talk about God. Um, let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Our God, these words are just paper and ink, but we hunger for you. We want to hear your voice. Please, O Lord. Anoint me now to be your servant and to speak your words that your beautiful children sitting here might hear them and be fed. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, Isaiah is a trip. Do you agree? <laughs> I mean, what a roller coaster! What a roller coaster these chapters were! I'm doing today. I'm going to be teaching you on chapters two through five, and one one portion uh, uh, he is saying these wonderful, warm words, and the next portion he's just like a big. It's like feels like a big slap in the face. And it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth like that, and I come away, and I'm um, really confused. I'm like, so, Lord, what is it that you're saying here? And uh, so that's where we're going to begin. And I would like to ask you, as a way of beginning, this question. Where were you on 9-11? Where were you on 9-11? And... Um, My seven-year-old son and I were sitting together at the table where I homeschooled, him when the phone rang and interrupted our lesson, it was my mother-in-law. This is in 2001, and she was calling to urge me to turn on the TV. Appearing on my screen was the smoking World Trade Tower in New York City, and I—and it had just been flown into by a commercial jet. And I sat there dumbfounded, with my mouth open, because nobody knew what was going on. This was a shock, and we were all—the the horror of this situation was just starting to dawn on us as a nation. When, and we were wondering how could such a thing like this happen? And while we're watching, we see another jet come and crash into the second world tower. And we're, and then, as the story unfolds, I mean, as this event happens and people are finding things out, um, we discover the Pentagon has been flown into. And fortunately, because of wise people who stopped all air traffic uh, to the United States in the world... <laughs> Um, no, no more things happened at that, at that time. And later on, as the investigations began, we discovered that there were 10 targets that morning, 10. And they were targets that had been specially selected. They had selected the Capitol building, the White House, FBI and CIA uh, buildings, and lots of other villa buildings in uh, in other cities in the United States, all over the United States, Chicago, uh, you know, I don't know, wherever there was a building that symbolized America's strength, America's wealth, America's military power, America's security, national security, and it was the first time that our nation had been attacked. On, on our own soil I think since in the century in that century so what a shock that was and as I was reading chapter 2 of Isaiah I was remembering all of a sudden these thoughts started flooding going in my mind because I realized that the, the, uh, the Judah had their places that symbolized their wealth and their and their power and their strength. As a matter of fact, as I thought deeper about it, I thought, well, every culture since the beginning of time in every part of the world develops what, what the Bible calls their high places. It's those things, those places, those things that they raise above the Lord, that they worship, that they put their trust in, rather than than in God. Um, And they have their ziggurats, their towers, their hills. And we have our institutions of finance, national security, political power, science and medicine. And whether we mean to or not, whether we mean to or not, somewhere in our life, we will ultimately place our trust in them to some extent. And this is where Judah was. And this is what God was talking to them about. Um, it was Judah was just like that, but they were supposed to be different. God had taken this nation and He had placed it in in this area, and He called them by His name. The whole, all of their neighbors knew that they bore the name of their God, Israel. Um, And he wanted them to be a light to the other nations. He wanted them to influence the other nations, to make their God known to the other nations. But instead, the reverse happened, and the other nations adopted, and instead, they were influenced by their neighbors. They adopted the practices of the surrounding pagan nations, and they, over time, became just like them. And when they became just like them, they became irrelevant and indistinct, and they blended right in. So, if you had an opportunity to work your way through with the study today, uh, would you characterize these chapters, two, three, four, and five, as a song of love? Would you say, oh, that was a song of love Well, yeah, me neither. So, what I characterized it as was judgment. Judgment. But love? And yet, judgment is not outside the bonds of God's love. God's judgment is not outside the bonds of his love. And we're about to to see that. So... As I read chapters 2 through 5 and listened to them being read to me on the audio Bible, and I got to to chapter 5 in particular, I could just hear and feel God's deep disappointment and grief towards his people. It was almost palpable. And there were some key verses. There was actually one key verse that just jumped out at me. And I, I began to think of it as kind of the cornerstone of the book of Isaiah. And the source of his deep grief and the verse that seemed to pronounce the fundamental reason for why this entire book was written. And it was found in chapter 5, verse 13. And it says, So my people will go into exile far away from me because they do not know me. They do not know me. And these words were also pronounced by Jeremiah in, when he picked up this mantle of prophetic ministry 73 years later. Jeremiah 4.22, he says, in there the, the verse says, My people are foolish and do not know me. In Jeremiah 9.3, they refuse to stand up for the truth and they only go from bad to worse because they do not know me. So now, let's go to the song of the vineyard. Let's jump ahead and see uh, the song of the vineyard. And uh, Isaiah, who was a master of different forms of literature and writing, he used a form called the parable song. And it's found in chapter 5, starting at verse 1. But I want to explain to you what, how this worked. So you see, um, a parable song was also or a parable like this was also used when Nathan confronted David. Nathan the prophet confronted David after he sinned with Bathsheba in, in the story in Kings. And what Nathan did was he told David a story. He told him about a man who had a sheep and how this other more powerful man who had a lot of sheep came and took his one, took his one, and David was oh so invested in the story, and he was really mad about it. And then Nathan, the prophet, uh, you know, he popped the the point, and he said, "You are that man. You're the one who took the single sheep." And the effect of it was uh, David was like it brought him to repentance, didn't it? Yeah. David felt the judgment of the Lord. He could see that God knew. And he was not going to escape God. Um, And so, that's what this is about. And it starts out like this. Now, I sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. A beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in nearby rocks. And then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. Ah, this expresses the Lord's hope and expectation, like a parent with a child. I mean, as I was reading this, I was going, oh, this makes me remember when I was... Creating a, a, an environment to raise my children in. And he, uh, it was a place of growth, rich and fertile. And he protected it with walls and hedges. And he's guarded it in, in a watchtower as he's looked out for, for its benefit and welfare. And he provided an opportunity for usefulness, the wine press which to me is like higher, you know, college. (laughs) I don't know. But instead of the harvest that he should have gained, we read this. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my, my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? I expected sweet grapes. Why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? This is a fair question. Everything was set. He did everything he could think of. And the loss that he feels is deep. And he says, there was nothing for it but to begin again. And so he says this. Let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'm going to start again. I'll tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I'll break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I'll make it a wild place. Where the vines are not pruned. So this is, this is kind of like all that care I gave to it. Uh, I'm just going to let it, it go. I'm letting it go. Where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed. A place overgrown with briars and thorns. And I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. No nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the... And then here he pops it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the lords of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. It's a description of the deep sin that afflicts afflicts his people. The people had made a covenant with him, He had made a covenant with them. They acknowledge the covenant, but only superficially because they engage in uh, the prescribed religious practices with no connection. It's like going to church and watching the clock and saying, okay, that's done. Check. However, their hearts are very far from him. Where are their hearts the answer is in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And if you guys will turn to that now, that's, this is where we're going to land. Chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord has rejected his people, the descendants of Jacob, because they have filled their land with practices from the east and with sorcerers, as the Philistines do, their neighbors, the Philistines. Although they have the law and they know the ways of the Lord, They don't walk in them. And instead, they participate in the superstitions and occult practices of their neighboring pagan cultures. Um, He says, they have made alliances with pagans. And by this time, the northern kingdom has become a vassal state of Egypt. That means that they pay tribute in exchange for protection. And they are hoping that, they're banking on... um, that Egypt will come to their rescue when, when they're uh, attacked, when they become attacked. He says in verse 7, Israel is full of silver and gold, and there is no end to its treasures. They love their money. That's where their heart is. They love what their money can buy, prestige, status, opportunities. They have it, they want more of it, to the point of stealing from their neighbors, breaking the laws, and to find anyone to try to stop them. And that's described in chapters 5, 8, and 19. And this is how that that was transpiring. The land, if you will remember, had been parceled out to all these families. And the land belonged. These portions, that's when we say my portion, these portions had been farmed out to all the, the families of Israel and were never to be sold away from their families. They could be rented, though, So they did rent out their land sometimes. And these people who had a lot of money would come and rent the land, and after 50 years, they're supposed to give the land back to the families, but they didn't. They stole it, and they defied anyone to come and stop them. And in verse 19 of chapter 5, they say to God, so do something about it. What are you going to do, God? Do something. Oh man, their land. He then he says, their land is full of war horses, and there is no end to its chariots, because they put their confidence and their trust in the military might and in their national security that that provides. They think, oh, we've got all these chariots and horses; nobody can hurt us. We're safe. We're safe. Their land is full of idols. The people worship things they've made with their own hands. And if you want to hear a really good sermon on idolatry, I have it on my desktop. It was preached by Alan Poole years ago. I don't remember when. I think it was when we were going through the Ten Commandments. And I think I just like it so much because Alan gets down to it where he says, Look, idols are things, are gods that we make in our minds that we can make a deal with. Let's make a deal. You give me this and I'll do that. We try to turn God into an idol. You give me this and I'll do that. And uh, some people imagine that they can do that with the sovereign living God. It's, I, yeah, I think all of us have been there at some point. He's, but he's completely sovereign and he requires obedience and submission based on trust. But they want what they want when they want it. And the people of Jerusalem love their refined way of life and they openly display their proud self-reliance. And that's chapter 3, by the way. Chapter 3. And so, God is bringing them judgment. He's raising up two nations to attack them and subjugate them. First, he's going to send Assyria. And later... He'll send Babylon to finish what Assyria began. In chapter 526, and this just tells me about the greatness of God, who God really, truly is. He says he'll whistle like we would whistle for our dogs to come. He will whistle, and these nations will come running to do his bidding and to exact his judgment. And it also reminded me of when Jesus was in the boat and his disciples were with him, and he was so afraid. And Jesus said to the wind and the waves, they were like raging. And they were were so frightened. And Jesus says, hush, be still. And immediately. And it's like that. It's like, do you want to know who God is? That's who he is. When you pray your prayers, do you know that that's who you're praying to? Sisters, that's who you're praying to. God whistles, and these nations do his bidding. It's amazing to me. And then he says this. He says, so now they will be humbled and will be brought low. And their reaction? Crawling to caves. Hide. Crawl in the rocks. Hide in the dust from the t- Terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty human pride will be brought down and human arrogance will be humbled only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment for the Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning he will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted he will cut down the tall, lofty cedars of Lebanon and mighty Oaks of Bashan. He will level all those high places, the high mountains, the lofty hills. He will destroy all the great trading ships and magnificent vessels that, we, that are stood for their international trade. And human, then he says it again, human pride will Be humbled, and human arrogance will be brought down. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. So there are two ways to respond to God's judgment, repentance or defiance. But here's what we don't understand. God's love and God's judgment are not mutually exclusive. One does not cancel out the other. His judgment is not something that his love protects us from. Rather, his judgment is central to God's love. He loves us. God judges us. He judges the world because he loves us. And he wants us to live in communion with him and with each other. He wants a people that are not just called by his name. He wants a people that are a representation and an extension of himself and his righteous character. And as you read through Isaiah 2, you see that there's two sides to God's judgment. You will see that there's the mountain of the Lord where he lovingly settles disputes between people that have accepted his judgment. But we don't have to accept it. And many people don't. And there's the day of the Lord when God's wrath destroys all that defies his divine authority. Both of those are talked about in in Isaiah chapter 2. Both of them are talked about. We can accept his judgment and repent, or we can arrogantly and proudly defy it. And you know what, sisters? Sometimes we do one, and sometimes we do the other. However, we need to be both delivered from his wrath and brought under his edifying judgment. And this is how we meet God in Christ. Now, um, I didn't write this down, but I wanted to say this. If you want to see the wrath of God, sisters, look at the cross of Christ, because that's where it is. That wrath of God that judgment, that day of the Lord, it's at the cross. And you who are called by his name, who have said, I believe, I repent, I choose to walk in the ways of the Lord, like your verse on the cards are, by the way, those are at the back. I really hope each one of you gets it. It says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths that wrath of God was left at the cross and the mountain of the Lord is, is where we stream into now um, I have a friend and neighbor and uh, a lot of people know her because she's around her a lot Rosaria Butterfield and uh, she, I got to hear her say something once and it was about pride and um, she said that uh, um, uh, one time she said, "You know, um, one day I was uh, was just uh, repenting, and I said, Lord, what is it?" And this is uh, before as as she was being dealt with at uh, her conversion, and uh, she said, What is it that separates? and And she looks around and she sees all these all of her pride posters and they're their pride because she was the campus leader for LGBT issues and her house was filled with this stuff, you know, like uh, t-shirts and mugs and posters, but she said as she looked around the room it went, pride, pride pride, she looks around and she goes pride (laughs) so this is what she wrote, I asked her can you give me that paragraph and I can just read it because you say it better than I do, she says There's only one thing to do, this is what she writes, when you come face to face with the living God, repent and believe. Repentance means to turn around or change your mind. I could only think of one sin, she says, from which to repent, pride. My house was filled with pride posters, pride t-shirts, Pride, coffee mugs. The rainbow flag danced in the breeze on my front porch and it was a pride flag. So I repented of my pride. The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy. The pride that said I was entitled to live separately from God. The pride that led me to believe that self-worth is self-invented. And repenting of pride, something that I do daily, I have come to learn that self-worth, that core desire to be honorable, good, lovable, worthy, necessary, needed, it comes only when we live inside God's story and not apart from it. Repentance is bittersweet business. It's not just some conversion exercise. It is the posture of a Christian That's much like a tree or a warrior one is the posture of the yogi. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our claim on God's creation and redemption. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it proves the obvious that God was right all along. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I had to gain Christ, but I did. That's her story. Um, Isaiah 2, as you read it, suggests that our basic need as humans is to be converted. Converted from a state of contempt for God's judgment, in which we love darkness instead of light because our deeds are evil, says John 3:19, to a state where we desire, we desire for God to judge us and chisel us into his masterpiece. The cross of Christ is our bridge. It's the bridge over the fault line between the wrathful day of the Lord and the sanctifying mountain of the Lord. And for me, sisters, I think, the most memorable time of God's loving judgment to me, and I won't tell the story because you know the story, was when our family walked through the brief life and death of our eldest daughter, Lily, And during that time and the aftermath of that time, the things that, uh, it was really, it really felt, it was a really hard time. And I was confronted with a lot of things. And one of the things I was confronted with was my shallowness and my self-centered value system, believing in and devoting my time to the realization of the American dream, um, which is in the air we breathe. It's like we think this is what we're supposed to be doing, Christian or not. Or perhaps it was just the human dream. I don't know. But my success in life at that time was measured by the size of my bank account, the quality and the prestige of my job, the size of my house, and my perfect, brilliant, successful children. Even though I called myself a believer, I wouldn't let the Lord touch my dream until he did. And when he touched my dream, He delivered me, and he taught me his ways so that I could walk in his path. And like Rosaria, I have to repent of that every day because it it wants to pull me back. Repentance is now like a breathing prayer. How about you? Do you have stories where you went to the mountain of the Lord, where God's judgment brought you out of darkness, or an idolatry that controlled you and made you incapable of walking in his ways? Maybe you can share some of those in your small groups today and pray for continued repentance and that God would not relent in his love for you because, you see, sisters, his love is too great to let you stay the way you are. And I want to end today's with a prayer. uh, It's called David's Prayer of Praise. It's found in 1 Chronicles 29. I love praying this prayer because for me, and I think for all of us, it sets everything in the right orbit of who God is and how we, where we are in, in relation to him. He is exalted, and we are humbled. So, sisters, let's pray. Oh, Lord, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. O oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Amen.